Okay, let's go to Revelation chapter 19. Started this last week. We're going to keep going today. I promised you good news, didn't I? And uh, we got to spend a little bit of time looking at that last week. And that was nice after all those depressing sermons of uh, 15, <laughs> 15 difficult chapters, right? Difficult chapters to uh, just give you the whole picture of what John saw. How would you have liked to have been John? To have witnessed those things, to have to write them all down. Um, that was an incredible thing. Chapter 19 begins good news. We saw that. Now, I told you it'd take about two weeks to cover it, and, and I, was, I was asked to stretch that. I mean, if we spent so much time on the other ones, why can't we spend more time on good news? And that's very rare for a pastor to be asked to stretch a sermon longer than what uh, typically is. You know I could probably take four verses and, and do it for a year. Um, and this is a whole chapter. We could have a lot of fun with chapter 19. Um, but I'm not going to stretch it at this point. Um, we are going to look at verses 11 through 20. I'll get the right number. 21. I was going to say 22. Uh, 11 through 21 today. We're going to talk about good news. We like good news, don't we? Most people do. We like good news. We like to talk about Jesus, don't we? We like to talk about our future and what that will be like. Let me remind you of something before we even start reading through this section of chapter 19. We are going to have the privilege forever to enjoy Him. This is a moment in history that's coming in chapter 19, when he comes again. But you and I, when we go up to be with him, we will be with him forever. Isn't that a great thought? Isn't that a great... Try to put your mind around that. Forever. So start with verse 11 with me. And remember, this is an event that is about... It's going to happen, and it could happen within seven years from now. Just so you know. But here it is. I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to 
all the birds which fly in mid-heaven come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. The rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. All right, did you sense good news and all that? You say, yuck! Okay, what's that all about? Well, let's first talk to the Lord, and then we'll talk about it. Heavenly Father, your words opened in front of us in a passage that uh, we know is good news, but it's kind of hard to swallow. It's very graphic. There's a lot of terrible things said in these words. But I pray, Lord, that you might work through this passage in our hearts. Do what you always do and draw our attention to things above, where Jesus is, seated at the throne at the right hand of God. Give our attention to him. And I pray, Lord, that you might encourage us, educate us, equip us, And send us forth. We have the good news. And I pray that we'll be ready to share it. Based even on what we see today. Thank you Lord for this passage. We do ask your help to understand it today. In Jesus name. Amen. Okay. There are a lot of events in chapter 19. You just saw it. We talked through a couple of them last week as well. Um, As we set up a chronology of sorts, uh, we would mark the rapture of the church in the book of Revelation at the end of chapter number 3. It doesn't say that, I know. But chapter 4 begins the dialogue on the tribulation period, and it goes all the way through verse number 18, and you do not see the church referenced in those chapters. Not on this earth. It's not here. So I believe... After chapter 3 and before chapter 4, if you have a little white space in between those verses, you could put the rapture takes place here, right? If you're playing chronology on this text. But uh, that's exactly what we have followed as I've been careful to show it to you that way. And when we get to chapter 19, the church is back. The church is back. After the rapture, the church went to be with the Lord in heaven. What has the church been doing? It's been there for seven years as we've been talking through the tribulation period. The first five verses of Revelation 19 shows us an eruption of praise, remember? Praise that Babylon, explained in chapter 17 and chapter 18, is destroyed and the name of Jesus is vindicated. It's a powerful scene characterized by one word. Hallelujah. Over and over that word is declared there. 
which is a command, by the way. Let me remind you. Praise the Lord. You praise the Lord. That's what it's saying. And the only thing you could add to that great scene is what is the final phrase of verse number four, and that is to shout out an amen in front of your hallelujah. That's the only way to top it. Verse 6 through 10 speaks of something the church particularly has a part in, the presentation of the bride of Christ. Just walk through the format just for a minute, a summary. There's a presentation in heaven. Chapter number 19, starting in verse 6, Let us rejoice, rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Now, this is a easy, it's simple, but I need to walk through this with you. Think carefully. If the bride is present, then the bride must be in heaven. Does that make sense? She has to be there. It's a simple point. But this is, this is where we're going to start. The presentation in heaven in verse number 7 and 8 and 9 implies that the bride is already there. Has to be. Now, there is a difference as we start talking through these things today between what we call the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. I want you to underscore this in your thinking. We talk about the rapture of the church, and so many people stir it into the same terminology as the second coming of Christ. I say, isn't that the same thing? No, it's entirely different. The rapture of the church is speaking about the church, and I want you to listen to a couple of phrases that I'll read. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 through 58. And I'm going to ask you a question when I'm done, all right? So listen carefully. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. And when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The whole key to that is that you need to be changed. That's what he said. We will be changed, right? Have to. Your bodies aren't made for heaven. Did you know that? You can't take these things up there right now. They need to be changed. They're not equipped for that. They, they have, number one, they're mortal. Number one, they're perishable. Two, they're perishable. But what did you not see as I read those verses? Did you see anything about wrath? 
punishment for sin? No. No, you didn't. Because he's talking about the church. Hold that thought. I read to you now from 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you do not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him or them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Was there any reference to judgment and wrath in those verses? No. Why? Because he's talking about the church. Jesus, even in what Paul described there in 1 Thessalonians 4, Jesus never even touches down on the earth when he comes for his church. The second coming, he comes to the earth and he brings with him wrath. That's what you saw this morning, didn't you, when I read first, uh, Revelation 19? You saw it, didn't you? That was wrath. That is not the same thing as the rapture of the church. The second coming is entirely different. The second coming is about judgment and wrath. The rapture of the church is to come and get her, to take her to heaven as his bride. Jesus doesn't beat up his bride before the wedding. Okay? It's not about the church at the second coming. It's about wrath. I underscore that for you today. Because when we're reading this, we have to keep the distinction. The church had already been taken up into heaven. The church was already with him. Matter of fact, as we saw the description in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 19, the bride was already in heaven. The bride had already been set for the wedding. The wedding had already taken place when it's recorded for us there. So the rapture has to be entirely different, and it has to be before the second coming of Christ. The only other event before the second coming of Christ is the tribulation period. And if we're not here for that, then guess when it happens? Before the tribulation. The rapture of the church. We go to be with the Lord, and there we are to have our award ceremony, as I like to call it. The church is awarded for her works, and the marriage ceremony takes place. Those things I see from Scripture, I give it to you so that we can follow the sequence of what is happening here. The second coming is not about the church. The second coming in chapter 19 is about wrath. That's why it read funny to you when I read it to you. You said, ooh, that just doesn't sound quite right. It's not about the rapture. It's about wrath. There's no mention of the church previously. I, I just bring that up to you so I can walk through this. And you say, well, I'd like to know a little bit more about that. 
A week from Sunday night, we're going to work on 1 Thessalonians 5, and I'll show you there too. The same thing. Matter of fact, I can convince you of this, maybe. If you follow a consistent hermeneutic, it comes out this way every single time. No matter which passage you pull it out of. This is a consistent hermeneutic that says this is the program that God has in store for his church and what the second coming is all about for this world. So, what we have seen is that the wording of verse number 7 is the marriage of the Lamb has already happened. Because you can't have a marriage without a bride. I think that's important. The end of the tribulation, the marriage has already been finalized. The bride has already received her rewards, it says. The church has been evaluated for her works. That means you too. Me. We believers. We'll stand before the Lord and have our works evaluated, won't we? You look forward to that? Most people say, I don't know if I do or not. Do you know that the Apostle Paul couldn't wait for that? He couldn't wait for that day. He says, I can't wait to stand before the Lord in that day. Why? Because Paul did a lot of great things and you're going to get patted on the back, Paul, and all this kind of stuff. No. Why did Paul do what he did? Was it not for the glory of the Lord? Was it not in service to the Lord? Was it not by the strength of the Lord? And why would Paul want this day to come? Because he wanted his Lord honored. He wanted all those works piled up in front of the Lord. I did this for you. You get the glory. You get the praise. I hope that we're that eager. That we want to stand before him and see the things that bring his name honor. I told you before, we talked about this last week, but 1 Corinthians 3 talks about what will get through, and what won't get through on that day of judgment for us. It says, each man's work, 1 Corinthians 3.13, will become evident. The day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And if that man's work has been built, uh, which he has built on it remains, he receives a reward. I suggest to you that those are the things that were done by the strength of the Lord, for the will of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord. If it's all about the Lord, it's going to make it through the test. If it's based on my strength, my will, if it's for my glory, do you think it's going to pass? No, because it says there will be works that will be burned up, and a man will suffer loss. You say, ooh, that doesn't sound good. Well, he's still saved. The verse goes on to say that. He's still saved, and yet so through fire. But the fact is that on that great day when we are presenting honor before the Lord, I'd hate to be the one who has nothing to give him. I'd hate to be that one who I lived my whole ministry for myself. I'd hate to be that one. Don't you want to take a gift? Don't you want to set something before him that lasts forever, that gives his name praise? Do it by his strength, ministry. Do it according to his will. Do it for his glory. That's what lasts. Now you think about that. 
Because now you've got to evaluate what you're doing. But it's not a judgment for sin, folks. It's a judgment for works. These things will be tried. And the things that come through, according to Revelation 19, verse number 8, these are the wedding garments worn by the bride. They are the righteous acts of the saints. Every time you do it the Lord's way, you're contributing to the wedding gown. Time's running out, folks. What are we doing? The day's getting closer. What have you added to that wedding gown this last week? What we have seen so far during the tribulation, the church is up with the Lord. The church has been judged for her works. The church has been presented and united with Christ just as he promised. Just as he promised. Remember what he told his disciples in John 14? I don't know why we always say this for a funeral. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. So you may use the word mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again, right? And receive you unto myself. Then the next phrase is so beautiful. You know what it is? That where I am, there you may also be. Think about that. That where I am, there you may also be. I read to you in 1 Thessalonians 4, just a little bit ago. Verse 17 is said, Then so shall we always, always be with the Lord. You know what that says? That says that if he's in heaven, where's the church? In heaven. And if he comes down to the earth, where's the church? It comes down with him to the earth. If he goes up, we go up. If he comes down, we go down. If he goes here, we go there. If he goes here, we go there. What's that mean? So shall I always be with my Lord. Isn't that true? People say, well, at the end we're going to see. The world is destroyed by fire and then a new heaven and an earth happens. And I've had people say, okay, if the world is destroyed by fire and the heavens are destroyed by fire, where am I going to be until that new one's made? With the Lord? Where is he going to be? With you? Do you have to have a heaven and earth to be with the Lord? Ah, we'll be there in a couple of weeks. I've got a big question for you. All right? But the point is, we're with the Lord. We're with the Lord. Why would he take his church up to heaven for seven years and say, okay, I've got to go do the millennium thing now, and I'm going to leave you here for a thousand years, and I'll be back? He wouldn't do that, would he? When we go into this chapter, I want to show you what happens here in chapter 19. We come with him. The second coming of Christ. We come with him. You ready for it? Here we go. This is where we start joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. You know, that makes us a happy person, doesn't it? 
when we sing that song? We say, oh, what a great song. Joy to the world. You've got to smile. You've got to sing out loud. You're so excited about it. Folks, this world is not excited about it. Only believers understand the excitement of this. When Jesus comes, this world doesn't want him here. Matter of fact, the world's going to oppose it. They're going to stand up against it. They're not singing joy. Only the believer understands the joy. Only we know why it's joyful. It ought to be joyful. But it says here in chapter 19, verse 11, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it, it's called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges, and he wages war. He's on a white horse. Now that's quite a contrast to the hideous beast we've been reading about for two chapters. He's on a white horse. He's called faithful. He's called true. In contrast to the lies and the deception and the blasphemous ways of the Antichrist. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Read that last phrase again. In righteousness, he judges and wages war. There are those who think Jesus is soft on sin, apparently. There are those who think that Jesus maybe is just too gentle to confront anybody. They think that maybe the God of the Old Testament is some angry God, and the God of the New Testament is just the Savior who's peaceful and mild and... and, uh, loving and kind and accepting everybody in and all this kind of uh, concept, but they've never read the end of the story, have they? He judges in righteousness. He wages war in righteousness. Truly, folks, his righteousness requires it. It requires it. It's simple. He's right. And the world is wrong. His eyes, verse 12 says, are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And his name written on him, which no one knows except himself. We're eager to find out what that is. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. Now that makes it easy. We know we're talking about Jesus, right? John chapter 1, He is the Word. His robe is dipped in blood. At the second coming, His robe is dipped in blood? I've got two prophecies to read from you from Isaiah. But I want to give you a picture here. Take just a minute to describe this for you. The church, remember, has been raptured up to be with the Lord for those seven years of the tribulation period, that's where we are. Down here on earth, it's terrible. It's terrible. We don't have the, the church down here. We have some tribulational saints who come to know the Lord, right? Maybe there's lots of them, but they're down here, and they're having a very difficult time because the Antichrist is going out of his way to destroy them. We've already read that. They, there's martyrs, lots of martyrs. Babylon is responsible for a great number of them who have died. We read that in the last two chapters. 
when we started this understanding back in chapter number 12, we knew that the person technically being targeted by Satan in the tribulation period was the Jew. He was going after the Jew, remember? We had that vision. Remember the dragon and the woman and the, the whole scene there? He was going to destroy the Jew. That was his goal, is to destroy the Jew. Why? Because God chose those people. And what better way to erase all the promises that are yet to come? The Jews are going to inherit the land. The millennial period is all about the Jews. And God's promise to them, they will see the fulfillment. What better way to erase all that, but then to get rid of the Jew? Understand that? Now, we don't get that emphasis a lot in here because we've been focusing on the sinfulness and all the rest. But let me give you the picture that Zechariah records for us. I'm just going to sum it up in a simple way. There is a day toward the end of Zechariah chapter 14 and so, 13 and 14 specifically, that it talks about the end of the tribulation period and the attempts of all the nations of the world to destroy the Jew. Who do you think put them up to that? Satan did. Well, the Jews are losing territory. I'm going to give you kind of my, my rendition of this, okay? They're losing territory. There's not much left for them to do, but they all gather in the territory of Judah and Jerusalem. And they're hiding out inside those cities. That city is particular, Jerusalem. The enemies gather their army together. We call it the Battle of Armageddon. They are just north of that territory with all the armies of the world. That's remarkable to imagine. And they are marching on the people in Jerusalem. They are going to destroy them once for all. That has been a battle cry for many, many years, folks. And you've heard it and seen it too. Let's push them into the sea. Let's destroy them. Let's wipe them off the map. They're going to have their opportunity during that time. They're gathered together to get them. The Jews are trapped inside the city of Jerusalem. They're surrounded by this army. A third of them escape. The rest of them are captured. The city falls. The Antichrist says, we finally did it. We finally won. We beat them. This has been our goal. And somebody says, um, a third of them got away. A third have gotten away? Oh, yes, they got away. Where'd they go? Well, there's a place about 200 miles away. It's down in the region of Edom. We typically call it the territory of Petra. It goes by another name as well. It's called Basra. This little region is a great place to hide. The Jews have no place else to go. A third of them go running all the way down to this territory called Basra. And they're hiding out there knowing that once they are destroyed, their name is done. There's nothing else. It's over. The Antichrist back in Jerusalem stops the party. They had a great festival going, but they realized, well, the job's not done yet. They're down here. So they gather up the army and they start marching 200 miles down to Basra to destroy those people. Once and for all, let's get it over with. They're heading for Basra. The Lord does an extraordinary thing. At that point, Zechariah says, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. 
these Jews down here, for the first time, the Lord enlightened their heart and they understood what they did to Jesus, their Messiah, their Savior. They know who He is. They look on the one whom they have pierced and they weep. Wow! That represents the whole nation. And they come to understand their need for Jesus. First time ever. And they call out to him. Just like he promised them. He said before his crucifixion, I will not come again until you're able to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they will shout it out. He will come. He will come. He starts in Basra, folks, to rescue his people. He comes down, this Revelation 19 passage. He comes down. His robe is dipped in blood. You say, well, what's that got to do with it? I told you there were two prophecies I'm going to read to you. Here they are. First in Isaiah, chapter 34, verse number 6. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat, with the fat of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. What was that? That's his coming. Here's the second verse, Isaiah 63, 1. Who is this coming from Edom, whose garments is glowing colors from Basra? The one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speaks in righteousness, mighty to save. So what they see, what they see is the Lord coming out of Basra, dipped in blood, mighty to save, victorious over the armies. That's where he meets the Antichrist and the armies of the world. That's where he meets them. Just as they thought they had the victory. This is where they find him. Revelation 19, verse 14. The armies with, which are in heaven, clothed, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. By the way, the description of this army is the same description of the church in the previous verses. She's just put on her riding equipment now. She's coming as an army now on white horses. Remember the promise? Where I am, there you may also be. If he's coming, you're coming too. That must be quite an event, folks. I get nervous on roller coasters. What's it going to be like to be on a horse and jump out of heaven and come down? I don't know. I don't know. But he says, you're going to come with me. Because where I go, you go. What does he do when he gets here? This is where we talk about the second coming of Christ. You know, his first coming, we celebrate that at December time. He's a baby. He comes to be a savior. He comes for the world, right? He didn't come in judgment then. Second coming, he comes as a warrior. He comes as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The first coming is for salvation. The second is for wrath. It's for wrath. Verse 15 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, 
so that he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. You thought the tribulation was pretty graphic and tough. Folks, it's not finished yet until the Lord is done. And he's come with the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh were the names written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's a very significant thing. You know, I wish I had time. I really do. Because Paul, when he talks to Timothy, he charges him to do his ministry in the fact that our Lord is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Of all people on earth, we ought to know that. We ought to work that way. Knowing that we have a great God, a great Savior, and His name is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that's who you're serving today. When the world sees that name, they're not going to have a happy day. For a believer, it ought to bring us great joy. But for them, it won't. I could, I can't, I'll have to skip that page for now. That's a lot. That's good stuff. I mean, that's really good stuff. We've got to keep going. God then extends an invitation. Earlier in the chapter, God gave an invitation. He says, blessed are those who come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And now his invitation in verse 17 is to the birds. I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cries out with a loud voice saying to the birds that fly in mid-heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God. You will eat kings and commanders and mighty men and horses and those who sit on them and men, all men, free men and slaves. You think we're ever going to get rid of that problem? It's still there at the very end. The small and the great. Verse 19 says, And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sits on the horse on the horse, and against his army. Here's the, the Antichrist thinking, well, we, we're, let's fight this out. We're going to win. That's an amazing thing, but it's prophetic too. In Psalm 2, the nations are in an uproar. The people devising a vain thing, it says. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed by saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. This is the final scene, folks, of the Battle of Armageddon. The Antichrist started it. The Lord finishes it. Verse 20. And the beast was seized. And with him the false prophet. We know he performed the signs. He deceived people and all that. It says, These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. This is so great. This is so great. Jesus comes. First thing, grabs the Antichrist, grabs the false prophet, throws him into the lake of fire. Battle's over. That's it. Yeah, it goes on. He wipes out the rest of them that followed. But essence of it all, isn't that the two enemies? And it's so simplistic. 
He just grabs them and throws them into the lake of fire. Do you know those are the only two human beings ever to not have a trial before the Lord? The only two. They're cast into the lake of fire. Instantly. Done. And the rest were killed with the sword that comes from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the, all the birds were filled with their flesh. We have other passages we could reference here. But the reference is for 200 miles, the distance from Basra to Jerusalem, the blood is this deep. This is the picture. This is what it's talking about. I know, it sounds gruesome, doesn't it? But I wanted you to understand, that is not the rapture of the church. That is not. That's the judgment on the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the armies of this world. That's what Jesus would do when he comes the second coming. And yes, you will witness it. You will be with him. You will witness it. You say, well, do I have to do anything? I don't think so. I think just stay on your horse. I think that's pretty much all it takes. Stay on the horse. Because he's going to do it. And we're going to be in awe when we see it. We're going to be in awe. The reality of these things really ought to do something for the church. Do you know that? I brought this up several weeks in a row, and I'll do it again. This ought to impress us with the holiness of our God. It ought to impress us with that. It ought to relieve us that we are children of His. We ought to be jumping up and down with joy just for that fact alone. This is not our story. Praise the Lord for that. It ought to propel us for godly living. We are here on this earth, and this world is going to be destroyed. Who's going to live godly in this present age? This crooked and perverse generation. Who's going to live godly? Shouldn't it be us? This ought to remind us that God keeps his promises. Every single one. We could go thick into the Old Testament with promises of this day that we just read about today. God will keep his word, every single word of it. It ought to convince us that while we've got time, we ought to get that message out. This world is doomed, and you see it. It's doomed. But you know the truth. You know the truth. Who are you going to tell it to? Who are you going to share that with? This world needs it, doesn't it? It needs it. I call that still good news. The chapter we just read was that our Savior wins. That's good news. Wait till we get into the following chapters. They're even more fun. Next week. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. The things that it says here They're amazing. So consistent with your word from front to back. You have declared this message over and over and over again. And I pray that it makes its its impact in our hearts today. In our hearts as believers. That this world is not our home. We are citizens of heaven. We belong to the King. We belong to the Lord. 
And we only have so much time. For this life is like a shadow, like a, a vapor. We only have so much time to serve you while we're here. You've given to us everything we need for godliness, for righteous living. You've given to us everything. May we get busy with the work, Lord. For we see the surroundings around us and think it must be coming soon. It must be coming soon. Our hearts crave to see you. We long for the day when our Savior comes and calls for us. And we go to be with you forever, just like you promised. Until then, may we be at work, for there is much work to do. May we be quick to share the gospel, for there is no other name that can save a man but the name of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we will be found to be useful tools to you in the days that remain. We thank you for loving us like you do. Thank you for giving us the end of the chapter so that we know what to anticipate. And what glory it will be when we're able to shout hallelujah in your presence. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for all this. In Jesus' name, amen.